DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Omar. Thanks, Chris. We're continuing our discussion of Chapter 6 of the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, which has as its focus work. Do we have a right to work, Omar? We do, and um, especially in America, (laughs) I think, um, people start getting their hackles up because uh, we assume that we're insisting on some sort of socialist communist state where everybody has the right to work. But let me just go through the reason why we have a right to work. And it's it's actually based, as the U.S. bishops will say in in, in their their document on a consistent ethic of life, uh, it's based on our being pro-life, being people who believe in the right to life. So the, the argument goes this way. If we have a right to life, then we have the right to those things that sustain life, like food and water. Let's just stay with food and water right now instead of all the other things. So mm-hmm. people may remember the Terry Schiavo case, et cetera, that a basic right of the human person is food and water. And if I don't have a right to food and water, then I don't really have a right to life. And that's a perfect example of that whole Terry Schiavo case. So if I have a right to life, I must have a right to food and water. If I have a right to food and water, I have to have a right to those things that access food and water. So we have to ask ourselves, well, how do I access food and water? Well, I do it, you know, uh, either by drawing it out of the ground or by raising it or hunting and killing it or something, right? Mm-hmm. So labor is involved with getting food and water. So therefore, we have a right to labor, a right to work for our food and water because we have a right to life. So that's where the right to work comes from. Why do we have such a struggle with that in just its very terminology? Uh, because of the way that right's been articulated, I think, since the Industrial Revolution for the last you know, 100 plus years, we mentioned a couple episodes ago that what Pope Leo XIII was reacting against in, in Rerum Novarum in the beginning of the social teaching of the church or modern social teaching was a change in the way labor was practiced, that labor was now industrialized. Labor itself became capital. Right? It was subjugated to capital, to things, to stuff. It's just a commodity to be traded. And as a result, certain ideological manipulations came in. So you had Karl Marx and others coming forward and, and, and making labor and the laboring people right something more than they were and, and changed really the definition of the human person in that manipulation during those times, a right to work was seen as a a means of imposing authority, imposing power on other people. And so the right to work was used as a kind of leverage against uh, private governments, against democratic forms of governments, against individual business and business owners, etc. And so because of those abuses, using the the phrase right to work, as Americans, I think we have a kind of a fear or a, a distrust of those who talk about a right to work. But as I've just explained, it's it's part of the fact that we're pro-life. 
It's part of the nature of the human person to work. And I, we've been talking in the last couple of episodes about the dignity of labor and of work. And so if we're supposed to reach our human fulfillment few, through work and through labor, well, then, of course, we have to have a right to work. The question ends up becoming how do we get that work and what does it look like and, and, and how society ends up um, meeting those responsibilities out. Does a government, a state, have the ability to force that right? No, that's essentially the, the, the answer. Uh, in the compendium, it talks about the role of the state and civil society in promoting the right to work. And it says that you know, obviously employment problems and challenges are a responsibility of the state. If the state is required or the response to the existence of the government is to maintain the common good, then the state has a role in trying to uh, adjust or help make possible the, the, the opportunities for employment. But that does, does that therefore mean that the state has to impose upon business owners how many people get to work or who gets to work or that people have to work? No. This is what the compendium says in paragraph 291. The duty of the state does not consist so much in directly guaranteeing the right to work of every citizen, making the whole of economic life very rigid and restricting individual free initiative. Rather, the state exists to support um, the businesses and creating conditions which will ensure job opportunities. Now, so that's the thing. The state exists to support the initiative on the local level, and that's a respect of the principle of subsidiarity, right? That, that labor, again, is connected as, as a social reality, and so it should be connected to the local community, and so it should be run, essentially, by the local community. So how that may look could vary given the economic situations of a country or the cultural expression of that particular country. The ideal then would be that the that the state would allow conditions to be in such a way that individual entrepreneurship of business can flourish. Precisely right. I mean, this is one of the great opportunities we have. You know, there's, it's no accident that the Industrial Revolution, for all its its ills, right, also produced uh, some some goods. And it's no accident that it happened here in the West and not in the East, for instance, where the fundamental dignity of the human person is not part of the cultural baggage, let's say, that goes along with Eastern philosophies. In the West, because the Christian respect for the dignity of the human person was created a respect for the, the rule of law and a respect for the um, individual initiative of uh, of people. So entrepreneurship, the word you just used, is, is particular to the West and, and is here because of this Christian understanding of the dignity of the human person. This notion that somebody, even somebody low-born, right, some peasant or whatever, can, can put forward an idea and through initiative and cooperation with others can bring about a product or, or in, encourage themselves and, 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 and contribute to the common good. That's, um, that's an approach to reality that is p- peculiar to the West and, and part of the reason why the West has had the influence it has. But it's rooted really in, in that sort of Christian understanding of the dignity of the human person. But for the Catholic Christian, when we begin to hear of violations that can prevent the flourishing of that entrepreneurship. And I'm, to be more pointed, an example might be the current discussions we're having on the conscience violations, mm. that if the state were to impose certain activities, regulations, restrictions, whatever that would be, that would violate the conscience of that particular business or activity that can be very problematic for the Christian. Exactly right. That's... That is a violation of the principle of subsidiarity. It's a violation of the fundamental dignity of the human person because right next to the right to life is the right to religious liberty. Uh, it's an extension of the right to life as well. And 
the violations and the very real violations and the threats and very real threats that have come from even our relatively tolerant and and republican democratic democratic society uh, ought to be taken very seriously because they go against the very roots of understanding of the dignity of the human person but they they end up creating an atmosphere that that keeps people from being able to do the the work that needs to be done i mean we know for a fact we know for a fact that there are businesses who are are going to be dropping employees and and dropping healthcare coverage for instance for employees because of the rules that are being imposed upon them from the outside that kind of state intervention onto businesses is exactly the kind of intervention that the social teaching would not support. The argument could possibly be made that the state has a duty to ensure the safety and well-being of the individuals who are engaged in the work that is in this particular business. That's absolutely true. So the state, which is required to maintain the common good, has to be able to have some sort of management over the marketplace, let's say, and the certain practices of businesses. And so the the compendium is not saying that subsidiarity means that the state can't have any control or any influence. The state has a, a very important role in the management of businesses to make sure their businesses themselves don't take advantage of laborers, right? They provide safe working conditions and, and all the rest of that. I mean, there are very few people today, unfortunately, they're still out there, but there are very few people, especially Catholics, who would argue that there should not be any kind of regulation upon businesses. And the compendium certainly does not support such a position. The question is, does that intervention help meet the common good? And does it help respect the, the fundamental dignity of the human person? And does it help encourage the creation of, uh, of work? Labor is part of the dignity of the human person. And it's more respectful to the dignity of the person to allow somebody who in poverty, for instance, to labor for that which will support them instead of simply giving them something that they didn't labor for. That's why it's always important for us who have the opportunity, the great blessing to be in societies like the United States system, where we have the opportunity to be able to vote for those persons who would serve the state, make those decisions on our behalves, to be able to be those who understand what the common good is, what uh, the social doctrine is that are of the people that they're serving. Right. But the danger with that, too, again, so there's always this sort of give and take, is that we end up considering certain benefits as rights. Right? In America, we love talking about rights, and we don't much talk about right duties or responsibilities. And so the, the state had, can provide us with the opportunities for businesses to provide labor, but sometimes it's only very natural that the human people in a society are going to want the state maybe to require a little bit more, that they have to hire me, they have to protect my job, whether or not I do a good job at all. And that kind of gets us then to go forward into the questions of unions and the rest of it. Well, let's first talk about different issues that have been addressed by the social doctrine over time. One of them, for example, is women and the right to work and that they be treated equally in those workplaces. Yes. In the United States, uh, women enjoy a great deal of equality in the workplace. The great difficulty, of course, is the question of pay and, and, and the levels of pay that women get. But we enjoy in this country a level of equality much better than it is in other parts of the world where women are not allowed to work and, in fact, not even allowed to be educated because education is just for men and some of these uh, other nations. And so we recognize that at the same time, what the Companion is going to say and, and the, the, the Popes have said, is that uh, women shouldn't feel like they're driven to work outside of the 
home, as though they have to work outside of the home, and as though the work of the home is not a work itself. Such uh, attacks against the dignity of labor in the home are um, uh, irresponsible and, and violate the dignity of the human person in all sorts of ways. That labor in the home is, uh, as we've said before, the most noble of labors because it's the most humanizing and it's more fully forms the human person uh, for his transcendent end. I think it's quite beautiful in paragraph 295 of this particular section where it says that the feminine genius is needed in all expressions in the life of society. Therefore, the presence of women in the workplace must also be guaranteed. Exactly right. So uh, the presence there and the, the, the insight that women can have in, in the workplace is extremely important. We've mentioned before the sort of social and communitarian aspect of labor and work, and sadly, I think, although it can be good things sometimes too, men tend to look at simply at the task, efficiency, and, and ignore right, the people that are involved. And that's, again, part of what the social teaching is trying to get us to understand is that the people are connected to the labor, and it's not just about a commodity to be traded. And the, and, uh, the experience has been, even in my own life, to know that uh, female coworkers tend to, to, to take into account the needs of the persons involved and not just whether or not the job is getting done. Another area that is still sadly uh, an area of exploitation in parts of the world is child labor. Yes, and in this case, we need to distinguish between two kinds of, of child labor. You know, in the, in the medieval ages or in, even in, in rural communities today here in the United States or in elsewhere, children work with the family in the fields and agricultural situations where they're contributing and, and doing what they can. This action or this, is, this section of the companion is not, is not trying to address those situations. In those situations, the child is being cared after by a parent. They're given uh, appropriate levels of responsibility and task, and they're not toiling unreasonable hours, and they're working with their family, contributing to the common good of their family and learning great virtues that way. We experienced that ourselves when we were in Guatemala. We were watching how the family units served one another as well as the greater community in whether they were in their field that they owned or even in some of the businesses that they ran. Exactly. So there's a, a good there that the children can, you think of the, the small family business where the, you know, the high school kid comes home from where, or younger, you know, and it helps clean up the shop and take care of the family business because it's, it's, it's what families do. But we all know, of course, that th- that kind of labor is not what we're talking. We're talking about the kind of uh, exploitative labor of children, especially during the 19th century, and that happens today and, and happens in, in some remarkably brutal ways in third world countries where children, because of their energy and because of the, the, because of their weakness, are being taken advantage of and are forced to live in unsafe situations, are forced to work unreasonable hours and are given unreasonable amounts of responsibility. Even in some countries or continents, uh, children are being put to war as soldiers in order to, to labor on behalf of regimes. Uh, these things are, are wholly uh, uh, intolerable forms of labor, and the, the, that's what the language of the compendium used. Child labor in its intolerable forms constitutes a kind of violence that is less obvious than others, but is is not for this reason any less terrible. Sometimes we don't see it, but it's there, and it's, it, it has to be ended. It has to be stopped. We'll return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. 
This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within thy wounds, hide me. Suffer me not to be separated from thee. From the malignant enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me, and bid me come to thee, that with thy saints I may praise thee, forever and ever. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez. Let's talk about immigration and work. A contentious discussion can arise if we're not deeply rooted in the social doctrine. Yes. Um, this, of course, is one of the hot button issues here in the United States of, of many. And it's not just here. It's, it's elsewhere. It's in Europe. It's in Spain. It's in Germany and other places where they've seen um, great increases in immigration for the sake of, of, of a labor force. A part of the, the difficulty here is that um, the, the native population, let's say here in the United States, is fearful that uh, these folks coming in would either steal labor opportunities for those who are already here mm-hmm. or be parasites, as it were, on society and, and gaining from the labor of other people. But these fears are usually rooted, not always, but usually rooted in mis- misunderstandings of, of, of who these people are. You and I have been to Guatemala. We've seen the poverty that the Latin Americans live in. And we know it's a, a grinding poverty. It's a dangerous poverty. I mean, I, when we, I worked in the clinic when we were down there, as I'm sure you did it as well. And we know from our, our dear friends, who the doctors, that you know people's lives were shortened because of very simply cured problems. Because of lack of clean water and other things, these these lives are, are uh, of these these people are, are not lived to the full because of the health problems, and so there are situations where no American would tolerate just the simple access to ibuprofen. Yeah, yeah. where we can go into a store and purchase for two or three dollars a hundred ibuprofen, mm-hmm. where in their particular region, for an aching back, for a sore foot, for a headache, it is. A day's wage for two or three, yeah. outrageous, and they so they will forego that 
just so that they can provide the food or the transportation that the family needs. Exactly. It's it's areas like that we we just don't appreciate. I didn't anyway. The depth of what true poverty is experienced by so many in the world. Precisely right. And in these and these depressed third world economies, you have men and women looking for labor opportunities to be able to support their families, but they're simply not there. And so when they come to the United States as immigrants, they're coming as uh, uh, from the right to, to labor because it's a pro-life thing. They're wanting to support their families and themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of simply wanting to leech off somebody else. It's not a matter of knowingly wanting to thwart laws as though, as though they exist to try to annoy us. They're trying to save their lives. And remember, again, as we talked from the very beginning, there is a right to work. They have a right to work. And so then it's a question of becoming, you know, what about our right to secure our borders and our right to, to maintain the economic system in our country? Yes, that right exists. It is a right. We have that right too. But mm-hmm. everybody knows, I think, through, through life, there are lots of situations where you find yourself where there are two opposing rights. Right? This person has a right to this thing and that person has a right to the other thing. So which one wins out? Well, as Catholics, hopefully we recognize that the right to life should, should mm-hmm. win out. And the right to work is so closely associated with the right to life that, that the immigrant who comes in should have a right to be able to support themselves and their family. Uh, now, does this mean that we have no right to enforce our laws? No, it does not. Uh, we have that right to enforce our laws. We have the right to try to do what we can. But we also have an obligation to recognize the decisions we make have to be made with the preferential option for those who are, who are looking to labor. And so we want to be as welcoming and as open as we possibly can, or to put it otherwise, to simply accept the fact of those who are already here and who are creating a system in our country from which we're already benefiting, but not recognizing fully. And it also, because we do have a right to have laws that control our borders, that we enact laws that are just and can function to deal with the flow that is, in many areas, necessary for the economies to be served by an increase of laborers who are willing to do the type of work. And, and again, they may not be wanting to come here permanently. Right. That's a, that's a false too. Yeah. 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 The, the idea is that they, they come, some people come and some want to be Americans, but you know, the, the Guatemalans we met and we knew, they came to, to make money, but so they could go back home. Right? Because they wanted to be back in their own home country. They, they're patriots just as much as we are. Right? So we, we want to recognize those, the, the rights and, and create the laws. The, the, part of the, the problem here is we have this perception that you know, we, we are a nation of immigrants. Right? But in, in those early years of the church with the influx of the Italians and the Germans and the Irish and, and all those wonderful ways of immigrants, they came to this country at times, especially in the 19th century, where there were no laws about immigration. Mm-hmm. They weren't there at all. The laws, current modern laws of immigration really didn't start popping up until the 60s and 70s. And so we're actually pretty inexperienced as a country about how to manage immigration. And so why wouldn't it be reasonable to suggest, well, we're still learning about how to manage it through immigration laws. So let's change our laws so Mm -hmm. that we can better manage and and meet the needs of those who, who need to come in. And the needs of our country to get certain kinds of labor to be able to provide the products at the price that they're being provided at right now. A good basis for this discussion for those of us who live in the Americas, because we do have many listeners that are in Europe and Oceania and a number of other areas around the world. But for our particular situation, Ecclesia in America by John Paul gave us a, a wonderful working sense of how this is played out and can be done in our region of the world. 
Absolutely. John Paul II does uh, in that document something that we've needed. In fact, it's that document that gives us the compendium of the social doctrine of the church because he recognized that in the Americas there's a, a, an opportunity to help ad- advance and develop the social doctrine of the church in a way that's not necessarily true in the rest of the world because of the close proximity of, of remarkably wealthy nations like the United States and remarkably poor nations like Guatemala and Mexico and Nicaragua and the rest of them. The sense of solidarity that, that he was constantly calling us to is something that we need to foster, especially in Americas, in the Americas, I should say. And it provides us an opportunity that we need to take advantage of. I think one of the telling things, if they are immigrating to your country, to go to their country, find out why there is a need to come, and if possible, help them so they don't have to. Exactly. And that's part of this dignity as well. Again, they're a patriot. They want to stay home. So what can we do as a nation in our public policy to help raise the economic and develop the economic chances in these Latin American countries or wherever the immigrants are coming from so that they can stay there and raise their families there? Because that's the other part of this that we need to recognize. And the bishops, U.S. bishops have talked about many, many times, is that in, in most cases these are men leaving their families behind to come here and labor and send money back. So this harms families. And as, again, a pro-life people, we should try as much as we can either to facilitate the process of them coming back and forth or to make it possible so they can stay in their own countries and be closer to their family, or if they've brought their family here to keep those families together so that they can maintain that family unit because that's the central cell of society. And a paper, a piece of paper, doesn't make them any less a family. The challenge, I think, too, is for those who are Catholic in particular, but for the for that Christian understanding, the importance of the family unit, that when we hear of stories, we hear of incidences that could tear apart families or hurt families, even though we may not agree with the reasons why they came or that they're here, that there should be a response of charity. Mm-hmm to the, the importance of that particular family and their needs. Our, the, our response should be one of virtue. Exactly. And that can be challenging when the discussions and the concerns become to a point where there is a heat yes. about it. Exactly. What are we to do then, Omar, in that particular situation? Because that's a reality. And that is a reality, and, and we need to be very careful about that. And maybe to make it more concrete, too, we talk about, for instance, prenatal care for those who come. And this is an issue that's come up in a number of various states and other countries as well. We've gotten to the point where because we want to otherize those who are here and we're so fearful, we're not, we even violate our own pro-life principles by deciding not to care for those pregnant women who would have a child who would end up being citizens here. We, child, we decide not to help them because of the fear that it might encourage more immigration or might encourage them to stay longer or something. Those are great examples of where we're failing in the social teaching of the church. And as Catholics, we really need to challenge ourselves that way. Yeah, we weren't called to like. (laughs) We may not like. Or tolerate. But we're called to love. Exactly. And that part of that challenge in our Christian spirituality, our Catholic spirituality in particular, that if there is this lack of virtue in my response... What does that say about that need of holiness mm-hmm. that I'm called to live out every day? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a calling we all have to take into account. It's something, this is where, again, the, the social teaching of the church 
comes into our everyday lives. It's a habit we build. It's, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But that's why we have to be so attentive about the way we think about these issues, regardless of where they show up in our lives. Are we rooting ourselves in the sacraments? Are we really trying to live this kind of communitarian love for, for, the, for our neighbor in everything we do in our workplace, etc.? Because if we don't, then it's that much easier then for us to look at somebody that, that we, we don't care for, we're fearful of, and to oppose them, to, to treat them less than human or less than with the full dignity they require. There's a reason why moments in uh, film and literature touch our lives and say, ooh, mm-hmm. ah, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm thinking of a Les Miserables, that scene where the bishop forgives Jean Valjean and actually when he is brought to the door after committing a crime and taking the candlesticks, he's brought to the bishop and he said, oh, no, no, no. And a great act of, uh, act of charity said, mm-hmm. you didn't take everything I meant for you to have and gave him the candlestick, showed him such great mercy and mm-hmm. love, mm-hmm. but then also implored him to go out into the world and to share that, which he did yes. and changed lives. That That is the challenge that the Christian has over that letter of the law is to look at the individual. That's what the bishop did. And it touched anybody who sees that. You'd have to have a heart of stone, Omar, in in that moment in in the movie and not be moved by that compassion. And yet that's not heroic. That's for the Christian. That's the daily activity we're called daily, to. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that that play, that book, that musical, that scene uh, really brings out that principle of the social teaching of certainly of going beyond mere justice. I mean, by justice, what that character Jean Valjean had done was wrong. Uh, the law required, he stole, right? By justice, he broke the bot. By mercy, by kindness, by love, that's what we're called to. And we also need to recognize this fact and that is our property isn't entirely ourselves. It's not an absolute right. I mean, we're so fearful about having what we have taken away from us by somebody else who, who mm-hmm. didn't work for it in the way we have. But, but that's part of the paradigm shift that we have to have in the Catholic social teaching is recognizing that the stuff we have is not for us. It's so that we can do the most good with it. And then we have to have preferential option for the poor. But, but these are all part and parcel of, of the social teaching. And Thank you so much, Omar. Thank you. You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.